if you've ever listened to this program in the past, you probably know that I do a lot of sexual health education for couples in my clinical practice and for individuals as well. For people all over, I give a lot of talks about it. It's a subject that is near and dear to my heart. So you can imagine, I was very excited to learn of the recent federal announcement that the federal government will be providing $2.8 million in funding for organizations helping those who face barriers in learning about sexual and reproductive health and sexual health needs. Joining me on the line to dive a little bit deeper into this is Dr. Jessica Wood. She's a relationship research expert at CCAN. Good evening, Dr. Wood. Hi, Maureen. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Before we get into what CCAN is, what exactly is a relationship research expert and how can I get that job? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I mean, I've got a kind of a a varied background. Um, At CCAN, you know, my my title is is research specialist and there's a lot of different things that I do there, but in that role, mostly I do research related to sexual health education, as we'll be talking about tonight, developing resources for educators, uh, such as the Canadian Guidelines for Sexual Health Education. I have a research background uh, in applied social psychology. So I went to the University of Guelph, where I did my PhD, and I studied I study sexual health and relationships primarily, and I looked at, you know, people's motivations for relationships and the factors that impact their satisfaction in relationships. And I also have um, a master's that is more of an interdisciplinary perspective on relationships and sexuality. So bringing all of those things together and bringing it into an applied organization where we can use that knowledge to help create you know, resources that help people and educators and policymakers make decisions about, you know, change, help, help people create positive change is something that is very exciting for me. Uh, absolutely. That's outstanding. And I realize that I am not qualified for that position. So <laughs> um, but, but thank you very much. I'm glad that you are and that you do this tremendous work. Uh, next thing I'd like to ask you or for the listeners, can you just explain just what CCAN is, S-I-E-C-C-A-N. It's an acronym for? It's an acronym for the Sex Information and Education Council of Canada. So CCAN is a not-for-profit charitable organization. And we're basically, our, our goal is to help promote sexual and reproductive health in Canada. And a lot of our work is focused on you know, developing resources to help educators, healthcare providers, policymakers, parents, caregivers, and others who are, you know, might be providing um, comprehensive sexual health education. And so, you know, I mentioned the Canadian Guidelines for Sexual Health Education. This is a document that CCAN produces that outlines, you know, frameworks, best practices, and principles for comprehensive sex ed in Canada. You know, we really focus on, you know, um, documents and resources that can help people advocate for better sex ed in, in schools and other settings. We provide um, resources sometimes for, you know, youth, uh, for people who are in healthcare settings. We do our own research. So we have, a, have done a series of national studies on um, samples of university students across the country on their sexual health and well-being. We've done studies, national studies of what parents think about sexual health education. And, you know, we do a lot of work on, you know, consulting and, and kind of helping to um, 
or, or help organizations uh, and governments and, and community community members to you know work in sexual health education to to help promote sexual and reproductive health. And do you, there's a tremendous amount of research and, you know, do you find that there are barriers even in the work that you do because it's still sexual health and sexual health needs and even the topic of sex is still so stigmatized and still such a shameful subject for a lot of people and, and a lot of parents in primary school, for example, they don't want their children getting education. How much of that shame around sex uh, interferes with the work that, that you do or your organization does? Well, what's, what's interesting, you know, you mentioned parents and our research. So we, we did a study, uh, a national study of parents across Canada and the overwhelming majority of parents, this was a study, I believe there was 2000, about 2000 parents. And across the country, 85% said that they support sexual health education in the schools and they support this early so they want the majority of subjects introduced you know in the earlier grades so between kindergarten and grade eight uh, and this is this is pretty similar you know when we look at it across regions so british columbia you know the, the prairies ontario quebec and the atlantic provinces and so it kind of contrasts with this idea that parents aren't very supportive of, of sexual health education. But I think often what happens is that there is, you know, a vocal minority and that comes out mm -hmm. often in the media. And so that gets um, exacerbated and, and played up quite a bit. And I think one of the things that helps sometimes is this kind of research where we can say, hey, you know, yes, we hear from this vocal minority a lot, but, but actually when we do the research, there's a great support from parents across the country for comprehensive sexual health education. And does that, you know, in, in some indirect way underscore um, that there is still shame around it? I mean, is it that parents want the education to be done in the schools because they don't want to do it at home or they don't know how to do it at home? And also, is it that they don't want to speak up? They're not as vocal. I agree with you. The, the minority around this is very vocal. And, and so that makes it seem like it's more of a majority than not. Um, but it, is there still a stigma associated with education, sexual health education? I mean, I think there's definitely stigmas. And, you know, especially when we think about different populations. And, you know, I, I can speak to that in just a moment when we talk more about, um, say, the specific uh, funding announcement and, and, our, and the project that we were funded specifically for. But in terms of parents, one of the things I, I do think is, you know, parents' comfort level and perhaps their knowledge. Um, you know, it may be that parents aren't as comfortable or they don't know how to have these conversations at home. Mm -hmm. And 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 also, we also find in, in research, too, that young people want to get this information from schools. They want to get it from their parents as well. They want to have it from trusted sources like their school system, their teachers, their parents. Um, and so, Parents may have these conversations, they may not, but it depends on their comfort level. It depends on their knowledge and their ability to do this. Um, and, you know, one, one thing they can do is just be open to having their children asking them questions. And of course, if they don't know the answer, telling the children, you know, I don't know that answer, I may come back, but let me figure out and come back to you um, later on. But I do think there's definitely, you know, still, we've come a long way, uh, but there's definitely still some stigma around 
just sexual health education in general, especially when we're talking about certain populations. And I think that, you know, this is, um, this was highlighted or emphasized in, in relation to, you know, that one of the projects that we were recently funded for um, under this new sexual and reproductive uh, health fund. Joining me on the line is Dr. Jessica Wood. She's a relationship research expert at CCAN. And we are talking about the recent federal announcement that there was going to be $2.8 million in funding for organizations to help those who face barriers in learning about sexual and reproductive health and sexual health needs. Thanks so much for staying on the line, Dr. Wood. Thank you. My pleasure. Oh, fantastic. Okay. So you must be very excited about this funding announcement, $2.8 million. It's a great start to, I mean, I think we have a long way to go, <laughs> to be honest with you, because I mean, I, I educate adults in, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and I'm surprised at their limited knowledge. Um, but this funding is really to help kids in school, um, to help really parents and teachers and, and children learn appropriate sexual health information and, and reproductive health information. So what exactly is this funding going to be used for that CCAN has just received? And so this, this funding, as you said, it is a really great start. Um, it's part of a new funding program under the Sexual and Reproductive Health Fund situated uh, within Health Canada. And, you know, I think there, there are some other funds dedicated for other kinds of programs, but as you mentioned, these ones are specifically focused on strengthening sexual and reproductive health services and education for youth. And the project we are funded for is concentrated on enhancing sexual health promotion for autistic and disabled youth uh, by ensuring that health service professionals have resources that have accurate and evidence-based information to you know, help them better address the sexual health needs of autistic youth and youth with physical disabilities. And you know, this is really important because there are a lot of misconceptions about sexuality and disability, sexuality and autism that contribute to a lack of appropriate and accessible sexual health services, supports and education. There's you know, misconceptions about disabled people as being disinterested in sex and romantic relationships. There's a lack of training for care providers that do act as these barriers to effective sexual health and reproductive health care and education. There's often not uh, a lot of representations of sex and disability um, available to disabled youth in education or the media. So people with disabilities often have to create you know, new scripts uh, or new ideas that can be really liberating and incredible, but also challenging when you don't have access to information about sexual health that's relevant to you and that will help you make decisions. And I think it's also very hard to uh, come into services or come into the classroom and educate the people who who are doing, uh, providing care to them instead of those individuals coming in with that information themselves. So if health service providers already have that information, it can remove one more barrier to effective sexual health care and decrease the burden that is placed on disabled people to do this education for others. Mm -hmm. And it's not that autistic people, I'm sure a lot of people feel that autistic people do not develop sexually, but that is not true. Autistic people may experience certain challenges when it comes to sex and relationships, which is why your work is so important. But an autistic person can have a very fulfilling sex life. Is that um, something that you would uh, agree with? Absolutely. I mean, people are going to be varied, um, you know, regardless of their, you know, neurodiversity. 
uh, neurotypicality. Like people are going to have varied experiences and varied desires. Uh, some people are going to want to have sexual relationships. Some people are not going to want to have sexual relationships. Um, but the, the, the important thing is that everyone has access to sexual health information and services that meet their needs or that is adapted to their specific learning style so that they can understand the information, that they can get that information and that they can then make decisions that will, you know, protect and enhance their sexual health and well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are so many people think so many people don't have sex. Like they think older people don't have sex or they think that parents don't have sex or that adolescents don't have sex. <laughs> um, as you mentioned, people with disability, that they don't have sex, people with spinal cord injury, um, people, others don't believe that they have sex or don't understand this. What are some of the important tips or what are some of the educational points, um, that you would convey to people with autism or those who are educating autism in, in your resources, for example, or somebody with disability? Um, well, I, I would suggest that, you know, they try to find, uh, you know, a trusted source of information uh, that they can get sexual health information from, um, that they, you know, that it's completely normal to have a variety of, you know, desires, and that, you know, some people want to have sex, that some people do not want to have sex. Uh, and again, it's, it's also around like giving people information about consent and giving people information about healthy relationships and making sure that they can have a place to ask questions uh, and that they feel comfortable and that they've got someone they can talk to. And I think just knowing that, you know, a, a lot of the time people have this question around sexuality is just like, am I normal? What, what kind of what kind of thing is going on in my head here and how do I how do I find information to see like am I normal or is this okay and being able to, to access that information is incredibly important and often I think there's this big misconception around you know disability whether it's physical disability whether it's you know illness whether it is uh, autism autism whether it is um, you mentioned older adults as well there's a lot of misconceptions around sexuality and older adults uh, I think there's just a lack of information that is tailored to people's needs, and they really we really need to have a broader conception of what sexual health education is, so that we can ensure that everybody um, has this information. Because many people, you know, even we're talking about midlife adults or older adults, many people may not have had sexual health education during their school years, and they do need information mm-hmm. to make informed about their sexual health. Uh, they may be having uh, sex with new partners and they may not know um, how to practice safer sex or they may not know, um, you know, how to communicate uh, about sexual consent. They may not know how to communicate about sexual pleasure and what they need or they may not know what makes them feel good. So people, you know, really need access to this information and we need to recognize that there are many groups of people who, uh, you know, need to have and education that is tailored to their needs um, and not making this assumption that there's only a specific group of people who are sexual and a specific group of people who need that kind of information and services. Absolutely. And when autistic adolescents lack the knowledge of sexual health, 
um, and sexuality, that may lead them, and, and I know this is supported in the research, that to engage in inappropriate sexual behaviors, which is why this, uh, this education that you'll be providing these resources are so important because, you know, adolescents with autism have difficulties with social interaction and that can impact a sexual health re, uh, education. We, we talked about stigmatization, insufficient sexual education leads them just not to know, not to understand. And, you know, that ableism assumes autistic people do not have sexual feelings, but you and I both know that that is not true at all. And, and, and also oftentimes people with autism can be excluded from social interaction. So this education that you're providing through this federal funding is tremendously important, not only to help destigmatize, but also to provide the appropriate education so that people can engage in healthier and happier relationships. Mm, absolutely. And when does this um, program begin? When, when do you start working on this? We have already started working on it, uh, and it goes until March 2024, so you can expect some, you know, very exciting resources uh, in uh, that realm from us. And, you know, we've got a, a number of other really exciting projects around sexual health education in general uh, coming out in the near future as well. And so where can people access this, this information? And just a quick question, you're working on this through 2024, March, but did you say that you were going to be, there would be information that would be um, put out during that time period or is it after yeah. um, that 2024? Yeah. So within, between, between now and uh, the project runs between now and March, we do a lot of consultation work. We do a lot of um, you know, research. We do a lot of working with, you know, we develop working groups and we, those working groups okay. um, consist of people with expertise and lived experience. And then we develop our resources uh, with them as well. And so we're bringing this all together and we create, um, for this particular project, we're creating toolkits. And then, you know, the first one I believe will be coming out hopefully uh, next, next, Spring, um, possibly. And then, you know, there'll be other resources following that as well over the next two years. Fantastic. Dr. Jessica Wood, thank you so much for your contribution to the program. Great information and best of luck with your project. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Maureen.